willing to live a life of repentance than right now. Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, 
You are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrite. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan is bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Repent now, and God will take care of the rest. See three main points in this passage. Number one, God's judgment is coming, so prepare yourself now. God's judgment is coming, so prepare yourself now. Verses 1 through 9. We see that God's judgment is coming. This is what Jesus, how He evaluates the situation of people getting killed while they're making sacrifices and the people who die because of the collapse of the Tower of Siloam. Jesus' uh, idea of what's going on or his evaluation is judgment's coming. And so you all need to be prepared. Notice the audience in verse 1. Some who some present who reported to him about the Galileans. So this is likely a mixed crowd of both believers and unbelievers. And they report to him the news about the terrible tragedy of Pilate's callous slaughter of Gentiles. Notice what they're doing at the time of their death. The end of the verse says, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. They were offering sacrifices at the temple. In fact, the New Living Translation, that's how they put it. That these Galileans were offering sacrifices at the temple. And at the very time they're offering sacrifices, Pilate comes in and has them slaughtered. What a ruthless act of judgment on the part of this governor point of the news report to Jesus was to get a reaction out of him and perhaps to get him to commiserate with them about how terrible of a ruler Pilate was and how they could somehow get out from under his authority. But Jesus uses this news not in the way that they wanted him to use it, but instead as an object lesson for them. Verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, Jesus says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the mindset of that day was that catastrophes were a direct result of a person's sin. So we could look at a tsunami in our day or the 9-11 attack and ask the victim ask about the victims who sinned these people or their parents remember John chapter 9 I mentioned this earlier in Sunday school but you know this blind man comes to Jesus Jesus heals him and the the, the um, Pharisees are indignant about it and they say who sinned this man or his parents and Jesus says neither 
one. He, or actually, the disciples, I'm sorry, the disciples were the one that asked that, and Jesus said, neither one sinned. Uh, effectively, his blindness was not a result of his sin. Instead, it was so that God would be glorified. How? In, in the removal of the blindness. You see, we tend to think, and the, the idea in that day was that only really bad sinners experience catastrophes. And so when we hear about a catastrophe, we immediately think, wicked people. They deserved it. You know what Jesus thinks when He hears, hears catastrophe? All who survive a catastrophe. Okay, so let's think about a tsunami that happens on the other side of the world. We might immediately think wicked people, but you know what Jesus thinks? Everybody else in the world who survived didn't have to die as a result of that tsunami. They need to be ready to repent. They need to be ready for judgment now. That's what he says in verse 3. I tell you, no. They're no, they're no worse. That, that was the question they asked. Are these Galileans worse than anybody else? And the answer is no. Unless you all repent, you too will likewise perish. The point is that you and I are just like them in terms of the frailty of life that, that we don't know when our last day is going to come. Today, very well, may it be our last day. So, we need to make sure that we repent now. Today is the day salvation, Paul says. Now is the time to repent. Everyone, I think that the larger point here that he's pointing us to and his uh, hearers is that everyone who has not repented will receive or experience a greater catastrophe than final judgment. That's what he's talking about when he says, you too will likewise perish. And you could perish without hope. Then he brings in another event to further emphasize his point in verses four and five. There's this tragic death of this tower collapsing on eight people or eighteen people and they all die. And and death is a tragic end to life, but we can change it from tragedy to triumph, Jesus says, if we repent now. Our proper standing before God is not determined by relative sinlessness or, or relative goodness in terms of our sin or lack of sin compared to someone else. That's not the idea. Our standing before God is determined by our repentance. Whether or not we repented. If we repented, then God will accept us. Not on the basis of our repentance, on the basis of Jesus' finished work. But the evidence that we have been accepted by God is our repentance. And if there's a lack of repentance, it shows that we have not been accepted by God. The truth is, is that God is merciful in His delaying of judgment on us according to our sin. And He has done so. Why? In order to give us more time to repent. And so, when we see tragedies like this that take place throughout different parts of the world and sometimes in our own world, our own country, our thoughts should not be what wicked people Our thoughts should be because, remember, their, that catastrophe is not necessarily tied to their individual sin. Instead, we should think, are we ready? Are we ready for judgment? Are we ready to enter into the next life and stand before God and give an account for how we lived? Are we ready now? That, that, that kind of ties us back to what we were looking at last week when Jesus said, be dressed in readiness. Right? Keep your lamps lit. Always be on the alert. 
Make sure that when the Master is gone that you are working because He's going to come when you don't expect it and you need to be working. You need to be serving. Always be ready for judgment because it's coming. It is inevitable. You know, the, the scoffers in Jesus' day, or actually in Peter's day, used to say, you know, why should we think that God's judgment is going to come on us? I mean, God has delayed for this long. Why would He bring judgment now? The world is exactly the way it's been all along. You know what Peter's response is? No, it's not. The world was judged in a big way. What was that judgment? It was a flood by water. That flood came on the earth. And you want proof that, that God is going to come in the final judgment? Look back at the flood. He didn't. Things have not always been the same way. And, and that's, the, that's what we need to keep in focus, in view. That the judgment is coming and we need to be ready. So have a heart of repentance. There's only one life, so be ready for judgment. Now, that's what verses 6 through 9 are talking about. He began telling this parable, it says, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any, so cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he, that is the manager, or, or, or the vineyard grower, answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. There's only one life. So be ready for judgment now. Jesus uses a parable here to drive home his point. Who do you think the owner of the vineyard is in this parable? Who is it pointing to? Okay, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the owner of the vineyard is God, right? And God is the one who owns the vineyard, and the vineyard keeper would be. What do you think? What do you think the vineyard keeper is the one that's asking for more time? The one that. Okay, could be a prophet, maybe the prophet help you. Okay, Jesus, probably most likely speaking about himself here, and then the fig tree is Israel. Okay, and Israel is often referred to as a fig tree in the Old Testament. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, I, as the vineyard keeper, am mercifully giving Israel more time to repent. But not only does He give them more time, look at verse 8. He said, Let it alone, sir, speaking to God, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. So God, He's ready to just get rid of them. Okay? They've been unrepentant, they, they they have been obstinate to me and they have shown no fruit of repentance and so now it's time to cut it down. And you know what the vineyard keeper says? No, hold on a second. Let's give it some time. But not only give it time, notice what he does. Let me dig around it and put fertilizer in it. I'm going to take special care of this, this fig tree. Jesus, I think, has done that for Israel. That He has delayed in their judgment taking special care of them so that they will have more time for the fruit of repentance. Then, if they bear the fruit of repentance, fine. Good. That's what he said. But if not, then God, then at that point, then cut it down. And again, we see the importance of actually bearing fruit. It's not enough to simply hear the word. Part of fruit bearing is repentance. That's why there is, in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, 
a a a fruit of repentance that John the Baptist talks about. Okay, so if we're going to be ready, it means that, that we must repent. And, and we need to recognize that God's giving us more time. That His delay is, God, is Him giving us more time. However, that time is not indefinite. Like, okay, when you finally get around to it, it's okay. Remember what we talked about last week? Those who delay are not serious about repentance. Like, I'll get that done later. And then we... We depend upon, in a wrong way, the mercy of God that, well, you know, He's been merciful to me all along and He's given me this much time, so i got plenty more. He says, watch out, don't come for you. And so now is the time of repentance. God's judgment is coming, so prepare yourself now. Number two, God exposes our hearts, so repent now. God exposes our hearts, so repent now. Verses 10 to 17. In this paragraph, we're reminded of how controversial the Sabbath day was for the religious elite of the day. And Jesus uses this conflict about the Sabbath day as an opportunity to reveal the religious leaders' lack of discernment and their failure to repent. And the point that I think he's he's uh, drawing out here in verses 10 to 17 is that they must repent now. They must be reconciled to God now. In verses 10 to 16, Jesus exposes their hearts and I think ours. Here we have a woman who had a severe back problem and this is just remarkable how terrible it is for her. For 18 years, it caused her, verse 11, to be bent over double. She could not straighten up at all. Uh, Perhaps you know someone that has something similar to this uh, we used to have a guy that went to inner city with us who had a, his neck was just always in the cocked position and it was just terrible you know that, that he just uh, had to go through his whole life like that couldn't straighten and uh, this lady apparently over 18 years had had her bones even fused together so that she would not be able to straighten up at all and with the problem lasting this long the bones uh, just don't recover. It makes it impossible to stand up apart from a miracle. And yet, verse 13, he laid hands on her, and notice this next word, immediately she was made erect. Immediately. Even though the experience of this ailment was for 18 years, and perhaps got worse and worse over those 18 years, no treatment helped her. No treatment. Jesus didn't respond with, here, let me give you an 18-year treatment. It's taken 18 years to get here. So let me give you an 18-year treatment. Let me give you a 10-year treatment. Let me give you a one-year treatment. No, it's immediately. She's healed. And instead of response of joy by the witnesses, notice what the response is in verse 14. Well, her response first is, she began glorifying God at the end of the verse. Okay, but notice their response, the crowd. This is the focus of the passage. The synagogue official doesn't respond with joy. Instead, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd, you see this passive-aggressive nature of the, the official, instead of speaking to Jesus or to the woman directly, he stands up before the crowd. Listen, everybody, there's six days in which you can get healed. You can come to the synagogue then. But on the Sabbath day, it's not the time to be healed. Now, what you need to understand is that Anything that was not life-threatening, the Jews thought, should not be healed on the Sabbath day. 
don't don't go to any doctors. If someone was, you know, on the brink of death, this was going to be a life or death thing, then yes, go to a doctor. That's life threatening. God would allow that sort of thing. That's how they interpreted the law. And so for her, was she going to die before the Sabbath day was over? But this problem that lasted for eighteen years, what do you think? No. And so they have a problem. This woman is has a problem that's far from life threatening. And they think it's more important to obey the law than to heal a person. Now, the problem is they have a, a wrong understanding of what the law is, right? It's their own interpretation of the law, and it actually turns out to be their own law, not the law of God. So they have a problem with her being healed. So he said to the crowd, listen, don't get healed on the Sabbath if you don't have a life-threatening problem. It's his way of attacking Jesus. And Jesus knows that he's trying to attack him. And so notice what he does in verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, or Jesus sees right through it, you're not talking to the crowd. You're not trying to make an announcement for next week. You're talking to me. You have a problem with what I just did. So verse 15, he says, You hypocrites! not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him. The implied answer by all of them would be yes. Absolutely we do this. Verse 16, they wouldn't say that out loud, certainly, because they probably see where he's going. And this woman, daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan is bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from the bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? Who is it more important? Your donkey or this woman? And the answer is obvious. That they were quick to make allowances of their own rules about the Sabbath day when it came to their livestock. But they were unwilling to show mercy to a woman who was made in the image of God. Instead of rejoicing with her, they seek to find fault with him. And so here's the point. Because God exposes our hearts, in this case Jesus exposes our hearts, verse 17, we must repent now. Verse 17, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Jesus humiliates the official and the other Jews who had made up these rules and were applying them on behalf of all the people. And the implication, I think, based on the context, is that they needed to repent of their sin of self-righteousness and to do what he had told them in chapter 12. Turn back to chapter 12 and look at verse 57 because it's very similar. Why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? Okay, You need to evaluate your own heart properly. Don't be deceived by your own heart. Evaluate and judge what is right in your own heart. Verse 58. For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way, there make an effort to settle with him. So he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. What was the point of that passage? A little short analogy. Jesus was saying, listen, if you have an offense against someone, 
and they're taking you to court, you would be better off settling with them, owning up to your sin and settling with them before you get to a place where you can't do anything any longer and you end up in prison. Right? So do something now. His point is, God has given you an opportunity to settle with Him. Don't wait till it gets all these different places and then finally you find yourself in a place where you can't reconcile with God. The time is now. And so what does he ask at the beginning, verse 57? Why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? Look at your heart and judge properly. And that's what I think he's telling them in chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Evaluate the situation properly from God's perspective and stop thinking that you are so self-righteous Probably we're too self-righteous, but stop thinking that you're so righteous according to the scriptures when you're not. Evaluate things properly. Settle up with God now, before it gets to a place where you can do nothing about it. There's no appeal. There are no more appeals when you stand before the judgment. It's not time to say, "Well, you know what? I need to go back and check with my lawyers." Or, you know, there are a few other things that I want to put on the table. Everything is made clear when we stand before God. He's going to expose us fully. Nothing's going to be hidden before Him. And so that is not the time to reconcile with Him. We need to do it now. Number three. God's kingdom brings about a great reversal, so make sure you're on the right side. So first, God's judgment is coming, so prepare yourself now. Second, God exposes our hearts, so repent now. And then third, God's kingdom brings about great reversal, so make sure you're on the right side. This is 18, 21. Jesus continues to point people in the crowd toward a proper perspective. Notice the first phrase in verse 18. So he was saying, what does that tell us? It tells us that this phrase and this section is connected with the previous one, that this is not like a brand new day. Now, on another day, he was speaking to another crowd. No. So he was saying. So, as he continues to help them to evaluate their own hearts and recognize they need to repent now and they need to be ready for judgment now, he was also saying, in connection with those ideas, that if we're going to think in proper perspective, we need to have eternal perspective. We need to, have, we need to think about eternal things. Here, Jesus uses two parables show that while the kingdom may seem small now, it will grow into something large. The first parable is about the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed was the smallest known seed at the time of Jesus in the ancient Near East. They didn't know of any seed smaller than this. And yet, yet, while the seed seems small and insignificant and of no value, just kind of throw it away, it actually does something great. Look at it, verse 19. It is like a mustard seed, this is, that is the kingdom of God, which a man took and threw into his own cart, garden. And what does it become? Not this little tiny plant, a couple inches high. It, it turns into a huge tree, probably six to ten feet high, they, they say these plants grow. And then it turns out that the birds of the air nest in its branches. So the mustard seed, although small and seemingly insignificant and seemingly of no value, actually grows to great height and... Now the birds are nesting in it. The seed which once would have been food for the birds now is their home. 
God's saying, that's, or Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom's like. You feel like the kingdom's small right now? Like you're in the, in the overwhelming minority when it comes to believing in God. Like the rest of the world is opposed. And yes, it is a narrow way. A narrow gate. And very few there be that find it. And it seems like, how can this become something great? Right? We, maybe we missed it. Maybe there's something else. about things in terms of the big picture, not about what you see here and now. Now, remember, at this time, it's only Jesus, His disciples, and probably only another 70 or 80 people who believe, who actually have fully committed. The reason I say that is because at the time of Acts, it seems like all the believers are gathered together in the upper room, and there's only 120 in Acts chapter 2. So, um, it very well could be just under 100 people at this time that, that believe, and it's like how could this ever turn into anything? Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is like a mustard. It starts out really small. And then it grows into something great. The other example is the parable of the leaven. The parable of the leaven, verses 20 and 21. You know, leaven or yeast is very small in comparison to the rest of the ingredients. You might, while you're baking some bread, think, you know, this is not that important. You just leave this out. It's so small in comparison to all the flour and other ingredients that we're putting in here. And yet the yeast is what causes the bread to grow very large in a given time. In this case, the lady puts the yeast into three pecks of flour, and when baked into bread, those three pecks of flour would have turned into enough bread to feed 150 people. And the point of these two parables is that things that seem small and significant and of no value or power will one day be transformed into something great. The implication in the context of what Jesus is saying is now, okay, we think about in terms of chapter 12 and what we've looked at so far, here's what we ought to do about that. If the kingdom is going to be great, even though it seems small now, then we need to be ready. We need to think in terms of eternal things. If, after all the dust clears, after all that is said and done, the kingdom of Christ is what is left standing, then should we not make it a priority to make sure that we are on the right side of that kingdom? And that is the inside. God's kingdom brings about a great reversal, so make sure you are on the right side. Two thoughts, two uh, principles that we can draw from this passage. Don't be blinded to the spiritual realities all around you. Don't be blinded to the spiritual realities all around you. The Holy Spirit is clear that we do not live for this lifetime. We live for the next lifetime. We do not live for the kingdom of this world. We live for the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ because He shall reign forever and ever. And that helps us in two primary ways. It keeps our focus on what is most important. It keeps our focus on what's most important. Have you ever been guilty of spiritual drifting? Why? Because your eyes were focused on the here and now instead of the there and then. We are prone to spiritual drifting when we get our eyes off of the prize, when we get our eyes off of the next kingdom or the great kingdom for which we are working. 
second reason it helps us to recognize things in an eternal perspective is that it gives our life meaning and purpose. Even as Christians, we can have times of uncertainty and doubt about whether our spiritual life really makes a difference. Right? Does, does my obedience and submission to God really make a difference? In the big scheme of things, is this going to matter? And I would say to you, mustard seed or yeast. Do these small things really make that big of a difference? Yes. Yes, they do. In terms of Christ's kingdom, God is making us into something great and something that will be used for being great in His kingdom. So don't ever think I'm too small, insignificant, of no value, of limited power. God can't use me. Because God takes things that are foolish, things that the world would kind of discard, say, we don't have any use for that. And He turns them into something great. And that's what God, through His Holy Spirit, is doing in you. So don't be blinded to the spiritual realities all around you. Number two, the second principle we learned from this passage is the key to spiritual clarity is dependence on God. The key to spiritual clarity is dependence on God. So if we won't, don't want to be blinded, if we want to see things clearly, spiritually, then what is the key? What do we do? And the key is dependence on God. If we're going to see clearly as Christians, we have to depend on God. And here, the Son of God commands us to repent. To take talk, take stock excuse me, of our spiritual lives and make sure that we are citizens of Christ's future kingdom. Take stock of our spiritual lives. Make sure that we're on the right side. Today is the day that God is calling you to repent of your sins. If you're resisting Christ's command to follow after Him, to take up your cross and follow Him, today is the day to turn from your sins and to believe that His life and death are enough to satisfy God's wrath that you deserve because of your sin and that I deserve because of my sin. And if you've done that, if you have trusted in Christ and are currently walking through a spiritual valley, and the valley has come because you have resisted to do His will, you know what the right thing is to do, but you're unwilling to do it at this point. And I would say to you, today is the day for you to repent and to make strive toward restoration with your Father. And you know, our Father is a loving Father. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Remember we started with the song, Great is Your Faithfulness? We believe that very strongly. But, but we should believe that when it comes to our sin. That, that when we confess it, He is faithful to forgive us. Put it past us. To put it put it past him. It's gone. Covered. Clean slate. And the last part of the verse. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God. He is faithful. He's ready to forgive now. Don't think, you know, it's too late. It may be too late someday, but today is the day to repent. The kingdom will be here in a matter of time. And our lives do not last very long in comparison to its 1,000 years and to eternity to follow. And that means that we need to make the most of our time now. 
Repent now. Use proper spiritual discernment and make sure that you're in good standing with your God, that you are on the right side. Father, we're thankful for the confidence that we can have in these things. For Jesus Christ, we're thankful for the promise for you, uh, from you, to mercifully forgive and to restore. And we pray that you would help us to be humble enough to acknowledge our own sin before you and to turn from it and to uh, grow in our relationship with you. Let's put to death the deeds of the flesh that by living according to your spirit as he lives within us and talks with us through your word and, and um, encourages us to do what is right and we pray for your grace. If there is anyone here that does not know Christ and who has not 